Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1 to 22. The Ten Commandments. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, Israel, the decrees and the laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God has made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guileless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. (coughs) These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on these two stone tablets and gave them to me. Thanks very much, Preeti. Um, Do keep that passage open in front of you, because we're going to be looking at uh, the the last verse of those, or the last commandment, um, the commandment that talks about do not, or you shall not, covet. Um, my name is Josh, I'm one of the staff here, I'm uh, an elder here at Christchurch as well, um, and we're going to be looking um, a lot more at that um, last commandment for a little while now. Um, if you want a, uh, a written copy, there's one available online um, at our website, which is christchurchliverpool.org, but forward slash transcript. Um, you can get a written copy there. Um, 
and uh, that might be useful for those at home. There is um, some Farsi written copies as well at the side if you'd find that helpful. Okay, um, let me pray as we turn to God's word and hear from it. Father God, this is your law, this is your word, and these are good words to live by. Lord, we pray what the psalmist prayed, that we would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law this morning. Things that encourage us, things that make us praise your wisdom, things that convict us, and things that point us more and more deeply to the Lord Jesus, that we might live both in his forgiveness and in the goodness of how he changes us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, a few years ago, my wife, Karen and I, we read a book which was a really open and honest account of the author's own journey into adopting her children. And um, it, was, it was an honest, she was very honest about the challenges and how she felt about them. And I think she was honest so that the book would be relatable. I think the purpose of the book was so that um, you could read and if you had experienced what she was going through, you'd say, okay, yeah, I'm not the only one experiencing that. And because she's writing about it in her book, then, well, it's okay to feel that way, particularly about the challenges um, when you don't have children of your own and you would really want some. But there was a part where the author was sharing her frustration and pain, but particularly how it came out when she would meet friends and hear the news that they were pregnant. Um, She was just very, very... um, frustrated and angry at going to baby showers. She hated being invited to, to those baby showers of her friends and her, her anger would surface when all of her friends were sharing maternity clothes. And when I read it, I did understand how her situation was painful. We as a family, we've experienced disappointment and sadness there too. So I could relate and I appreciated her honesty, but something didn't quite sit right. That what was happening was that as she was experiencing the brokenness of the world, it became a, a bitterness towards her friends. That it seemed okay for her to be angry because she wanted what other people were having and for that particularly to be provoked by their happiness. That her desire for having children seemed to legitimise what were actually really, really horrible feelings towards friends who were actually inviting her into their celebration inviting her into their joy, but she couldn't share in their joy because she had in her heart the desire so badly to get what they were getting, that their happiness was what provoked uh, the intensity of her own self-pity. Now, I can actually relate to that. Perhaps you can relate to that in many different ways. But I always thought that that was something to repent of, not something to say, We all feel it, and therefore it's okay. Now, that might not be the picture of coveting that immediately comes to mind when you read the uh, 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, or his wife, or his ox, or his donkey. We think when we read that of the the wide-eyed, greedy neighbor peering over the fence, making a list of all your stuff that they would really like. But actually, coveting is when we want something, even if it's something good. You know, maybe especially when we deeply desire something good and we legitimize feeling angry towards people who have it. 
We, we put a good face on it, a, a respectable face on our discontent by saying, look, if other people have it, that is fine to be discontent. When the happiness and blessing of those around us actually become what makes us sad. And hopefully you can see if that's what coveting is, how dangerous and destructive that is for the society that God is creating when he speaks these 10 words, these 10 words to live by. In the, when God spoke this, uh, good things were going to happen to his people. Um, they were about to be led into a land flowing with milk and honey. They were going to be blessed by God's own hand. They were going to have abundance and prosperity. But God is saying here, if you take covetousness with you into the land, the seeds of covetousness will take root. And when you see others blessed in the land of blessing, but blessed in a way that you're not, well, that seed of covetousness will grow into bitterness and that will rob them of joy and ruin relationships. Because it's true that covetors going to hate. Um, this is a play on a Taylor Swift lyric. If you don't know Taylor Swift, I don't really know it. So I'm not sure if you've got it right. I don't think I've heard that song. But there you go. Covetors are going to hate. Um, let me tell you a joke. There's a joke where um, two people are running away from a bear, being chased by a bear. You might know it. It's not that funny, so you're not going to have to laugh. But um, two people running away from a bear, and one of them uh, bends over to put on his running shoes. And the other person uh, says to them, what are you doing? Don't you know that... Um, a human being can't outrun a bear. And the first person says, well, I know that. I don't need to outrun the bear. I just need to outrun you. Well, I think our expectations of life can work that way too. Your expectation of what your life's going to be isn't that you can do, you can outrun a bear. It's not that you can do what no human being can do. You probably haven't lived your life hoping that you'd be a billionaire by the time you're 21, have a glittering 50-year 50 50 superstar career, own your own company, retire at 30, travel the world, go to space and win a Nobel Prize. But we probably do look at the people around us and think, I don't need to outrun the bear, but I need to just at least be equal to or better than you. We've got this concept called our stage of life. And what that means is really a set of expectations that we form by looking at other people around us. When people at your stage of life are graduating or getting jobs, or getting married, or taking fancy holidays, or going on cool city breaks, or upgrading their cars, or having kids. What other people have sets the expectation for what you should have. You're not trying to outrun the bear, but at the very least, you're trying to keep an eye on everyone else who's running. And we learn at every stage to compare ourselves with those around us. Now, it has been like this all the time. I'm not sure that there's ever been a culture where this hasn't been happening. There's never been a generation where this hasn't happened, but there are extra dangers for you if you are regularly looking at um, curated and filtered photographs of what your peers are doing when you see their restaurant dinner on your phone, their kids' first day at school, the view from the hotel window, their ox, their donkey, their manservant, their maidservant. We do need to be careful because comparison is the seedbed of covetousness. Where comparison happens, covetousness is going to happen. Where comparison happens, you're going to see what you don't have. And you're going to listen to the voice inside you that says, come on, keep up. And there's a voice in the world around us that says, and that's okay to be sad if you're not keeping up. That's okay if they have it, but you don't. That's fine for you to 
to have a problem with that. So instead of a world where we see others, we see our friends, and we say, isn't God good that my friends, who are lovely people, get to have lovely things, and I share in the joy of that? Instead of that leading to thankfulness and joy, where covetousness reigns, other people become your competition. This is disturbing. About 20 years ago, there was a study that showed more people would rather earn £50,000 a year in a world where everybody else earned £25,000, half as much. We'd rather that than live in a world where they earned £100,000 a year, but everyone else earned double. Or even more sinister, um, there was a piece of social science research in a university about students that showed that more students would rather receive negative feedback on their piece of work to be told you're not doing it right, to be told things aren't right, but as long as other people got worse feedback, they'd rather that than get positive feedback on their work and find that everyone else has got better feedback. Do you see, that means that when we're deeply honest with one another, with ourselves, we'd rather the world be broken. We'd rather experience the suffering of the world as long as other people are having it worse than actually experience a, a world where things are working, where other people are getting more than us. So you see, comparing leads to coveting, and you see that coveting leads to wishing things were broken. Coveting leads to wishing others suffer. Coveting leads to, well, there's a word for that, which is hate. That seems a strong claim, but it is really twisted, isn't it? To, to have your friend win a promotion, and for that to result in your anger. It's really twisted that we're not happy for our neighbours. Coveting makes us into people who wish bad things for our neighbour instead of loving our neighbour. Covetousness makes it impossible for us to want the good and the joy of others. It turns what is lovely gift from God, a friendship, into a competition. Coveting gives birth to bitterness, which begins with resentment at the joy of others quietly but it grows into preferring that they suffer more than you do. But this command says, uh, you shall not covet. It, it causes away from that slippery slope of envy and comparison, which leads into bitterness and gossip and mistrust and manipulation. Because telling us not to covet is a call to a world where the happiness of others can be your happiness. It is a call to multiply your joy. Um, let me describe for you, tell you about the 2011 John Lewis Christmas advert. Some of you um, will have been watching John Lewis Christmas adverts for decades. You'll know this one, but some of you um, would have been in nappies. Who knows? Um, but in 2011, John Lewis Christmas advert was centred around a boy who was counting down the days to Christmas. So um, the boy in this advert uh, began by looking at his... Uh, advent calendar and was you could see the look on his face was very very sad when he realized how long there was until christmas and the rest of the advert it's about two minutes long they always make them a bit long um was the boy looking bored tapping his fingers swinging his legs very just counting down the minutes counting the days he, you could tell he couldn't wait till christmas he was being very impatient he was being very sorrowful that he had to wait so long for christmas and then at the end of the advert comes the twist. He wakes up on Christmas morning. He is excited and his presents are there at the bottom of his bed. 
and he walks straight past his presence. And he walks into his cupboard to get a present for his mum and dad. And you realise that the heart-moving thing that brings you to tears of what is an advert for a department store, um, the heartwarming thing is that he was counting down to Christmas because he wanted to see the look on his parents' faces when he finally gave them the present. Now, there is something far more powerful in this advert about the fact that it's about the boy longing deeply and over time that longing intensifying for the joy of his parents. And you can tell, can't you, that it wouldn't have the same effect if this was an advert about a greedy boy who just wanted stuff. That would not be the one we're talking about 11 years later. Um, The people who made that advert have clocked, they've they've recognised that as human beings we are wired to get far greater joy when we share the joy with others rather than the half-hearted joy we get when we get stuff. So when the Ten Commandments, in the Ten Commandments, God tells the Israelite nation, you shall not covet, actually that, that, that comes to life, the good of that command comes to life when God gives a similar command to his new community in the New Testament, the church. He tells them something similar, not you shall not covet, although that is still true and right, but he says, honour one another above yourselves, And just a few lines later, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice. So you see that God's plan for our happiness is he puts us in a community with others, not to covet, not so that we chase their status or their experience or the stuff they have, but so that in this community, we get to rejoice with one another. We get to share each other's joy. And the John Lewis advert proves to us, without us realising it, that when we do that, that's a place not of loss, but a place of deeper joy, a place of multiplied joy. Look, for all the ways that we we can beat ourselves up and we we get this wrong and um, we've got lots to learn, you know, we do see this happen. We have experienced this happening in the lives of godly people around us. That's one of the things I really love about our church is when we see glimpses of this. There's a few examples. I'm going to choose a generic one, so it's not to put anyone on the spot. But an example that we can see in our church, where perhaps somebody doesn't have a house of their own. They don't earn enough money. They've just started on the career ladder. They can't own a house of their own. That's a tricky thing to do anyway. So people don't own a house of their own, but they wish they could. And then someone else goes and buys a house. And it's a nice one. And it's got an extra bedroom and a nice garden, front and back. Ideally set up for coveting. But actually, we can see sometimes in our church, often, dear, beloved people who wish they had a house, but they see someone else get it, and they actually share in their joy. They look to the good of those people. They love them. They share in their joy. And the person with the house uh, is generous and loving. And they say, well, I'll open up my spare room and people can stay. They have dinner parties. They open their garden for... um, for paddling pools and barbecues. And then the people without a house say, oh, my parents are coming this weekend. Could they stay over at yours? And that leads to everybody sharing the blessing. And everyone can say, what a good God there is because he's given these great things that we all enjoy the blessing of. Now, can you imagine in that situation how much joy the covetousness would sap out of it? Can you imagine where the person says, I bought a nice house but don't want to tell anyone? Because I... I think they'll get a little bit funny about me having an extra bedroom. And everyone's treading on eggshells to try and not acknowledge 
that God has given a good gift. And nobody offers to share what they have because they don't want to offend the people who don't have. And nobody asks to share because that relationship is tense. Well, that's not what we're called to. There's a multiplying joy in those situations where the person who could be coveting actually shares the joy. The person who could be coveting honours the other person above themselves and says, I'm going to rejoice with you in your rejoicing. On a personal note, for us, and um, before we were able to adopt our children, um, we were so glad that we were able to celebrate the pregnancies of other families, that we were invited to celebrate births, children born into other families when we really didn't have children. Doing that celebration wasn't soul-destroying. Stepping into that joy was a, a lifeline. See, to press down into our loss would have been to create distance with people when what we wanted was closeness. And to celebrate with others... Well, it just lifted our eyes to God's goodness, God's bigger plan, opportunities that he's given us. Rejoice with those who rejoice is the opposite of coveting. It's the way to multiply your joy. It's what God has in mind about not coveting. And the key to it, according to this verse, is that you honour one another above yourselves. I think that's quite important because I come up with a few ways of my own not to covet. Um, I've managed a few little strategies in my life. I thought they were quite good, but they're, they're not. Um, you might recognise these as well. You can avoid coveting by, um, one, don't look. You just don't look at what other people have. So you don't go on social media, you don't scroll through their Instagram, you don't pay attention to their lives, and you don't really form close relationships with others. Or number two, you can avoid coveting by getting what they've got. You just go on Amazon and get a credit card and you just buy the things you want. Okay, firstly, they're not really possible, so you can't actually function like that. And number two, um, they don't give joy. That's not the solution to not coveting. If you try and not covet by not looking at what other people have and getting what they have, does not multiply your joy. But you shall not covet points us to honour othering above yourselves, which leads to multiplied joy. So when we read in Deuteronomy, you shall not covet, it's pointing us to seeing others as valuable and important people to enjoy God's good gifts, to put others above yourself. And that is a gateway to joy and freedom and community. So coveting saps joy. Coveter's going to hate. But putting others above yourself means you can rejoice when others rejoice. When their joy is your joy. You shall not covet means you multiply your joy. Now this is the last of the Ten Commandments. Um, and it's worth just thinking about um, some of the stuff we've been thinking about over the whole 10 weeks. I hope you've seen that these are good words to live by. These Ten Commandments are not restrictive rules. We've seen on every single week there is something wonderful and joyful and fulfilling and life-giving about all 10 of these commandments. But you'll have also seen, if you've been here while we've been doing this series, that children are holidays. Bitter. He didn't have the inclination to covet because he always put others above himself. The great blessing of this command is was seen when Jesus put others first. It was his joy to do the will of his father. It was his joy to see the cross scorning its shame. But that wasn't the joy of getting some reward that he'd been coveting for a long time. That joy was the joy of other people's joy. For the joy that was set before him, for the joy of his father, for the joy of you and I, he endured the cross. 
His joy was that you and I would get to experience his joy. He's only ever done the opposite of coveting. Jesus, instead of wanting what everyone else had, he wanted to give up what he had. Father's family, the approval of the Father, that we could have everlasting life and glory. And because that's what he did, that's how we should look at all all their full colour in Jesus. He lived by them and he only ever gave off blessing and joy and rest. And although these commandments, and especially this last one, exposes us, and although the fact that coveting is tricky because it's a thought we can't not think, um, and that exposes our hearts, Jesus meets us in kindness and grace. Jesus forgives us and he sends his spirit people who multiply our joy more and more because we grow more and more by his spirit into people who put others above ourselves. Jesus wants us to grow more and more into people who take delight in the joy of others and multiply our joy. We know that without him our hearts are hopeless. We are led into coveting even just by thinking of the commandment and that's not the commandment's fault. That's because our hearts are at fault but Jesus he's lived commandment of blessing he wants us to step in and so he will change you by his holy spirit to grow into someone for whom the joy of not and is to come to him with our wayward hearts that love to desire what other people have and know that jesus has only ever wanted you to have what he has he wants to multiply your joy